and welcome to After Alexander, Episode 7, The Prize. Last time in our narrative, we saw Seleucus re-establish himself in Babylon as the satrap after a prolonged period of exile. This was an event which later generations would see as so important that it would be the start of the Seleucid era calendar. I'm going to touch on Seleucus's reconquest for a bit longer, as even with the benefit of hindsight it's a remarkable achievement. His force to retake the province was minute by comparison with only 800 infantry and 200 horsemen. Now, I don't know about you, but a thousand people total is probably about the size of some small football crowds, and I wouldn't feel particularly confident about retaking a province with one. And yet, by June of 312, there he was, back in his seat of power in Babylon. It's thought that he used the Euphrates River's waters to his advantage somehow, but we don't really know what he did. Either way, whatever really happened, Babylon fell to him. Where once he might have been condemned to remain a satrap's understudy in Egypt, now he was back in the political game. At least to my mind, there seems to be quite a bit of luck involved. He received an army from Ptolemy after the victory of Gaza, after all. Had this battle been a failure, I can imagine Ptolemy would have found he might not have had such deep pockets when it came to distributing armies. In addition, Seleucus managed to avoid fighting Antigonus on his way to Babylon, which would no doubt not have gone well for him if, we ha if he had. Don't get me wrong, Seleucus is no military rookie, but luck does seem to play a substantial part in his story to retake Babylon. So, what's a satrap to do once he's reinstated? Why, get entangled in the succession disputes of the other powers, of course. A quick side note here before we continue. I'm essentially going to ignore the Argiad royal family from now on, as well as most likely the regent as well. I know that the royal family are still around at this point in our narrative, given that we jumped ahead a bit last time to 309 BCE, but they're largely irrelevant anyway by this stage. So, from now on, you'll only have to focus on one set of names. Anyway, although Seleucus was back in Babylon, the rest of the political picture was largely unchanged. Antigonus and Demetrius, although you probably wouldn't call them supreme, were still the highly dangerous force they had been around the time of the Battle of Gaza. Ptolemy was still sitting pretty in Egypt, while Cassandra and Lysimachus sit over the Hellespont in the Balkans. As I mentioned before, Seleucus had been lucky. The pro-Antigonus satrap of Babylon, named Python, had been killed at Gaza, which would have effectively disabled at least part of the opposition to his return. Added to that, Antigonus had other things on his mind back in 312. After all, he was still fighting the coalition assembled against him. However, with the Peace of 311 we discussed in episode 5, all of that is going to change. It was time for Antigonus to look eastwards again at the troublesome man who just kept coming back for more. In part 2, we'll see the struggle Seleucus faced to keep the prize he'd just won back. That's coming up after the music. See you then! The 
first wave of attack would come in the form of Antigonus's friends and satraps. Specifically, these would be Nicanor and Evagoras, the governors of Media and Aria. Brief note on Evagoras, I've seen his name spelt with a U rather than a V as well, but for the sake of my pronunciation capabilities, I'm going to keep calling him Evagoras, if that's alright with everyone. Anyway, about five seconds after Seleucus reinstalled himself in Babylon, these two men marched to take him down. Seleucus, in turn, marched out to meet them, and the armies met near the Tigris River. I've seen numbers quoted before that Nicanor had 17,000 soldiers with him, but I don't really know if that number's accurate or not. Whatever the figures actually are, Seleucus's army was smaller than the combined might of Nicanor and Evagoras, so he needed an element of surprise. Accordingly, Seleucus is supposed to have concealed his troops in the marshes associated with the river Tigris, which although it was probably a good idea strategically, you can imagine it wasn't a lot of fun for anyone involved. Now, Nicanor and Evagoras were on the other side of the Tigris to Seleucus, so they needed to cross in order to give him the planned kicking. However, Seleucus attacked the crossing after sundown, catching both men off guard. During the fighting, Evagoras was killed. His men, rather than simply running away, defected to Seleucus instead. Nicanor at this point had been separated from his own troops, so was duly forced to flee with only a handful of soldiers. Seleucus had won. Consider what the implications of this victory would have been for Seleucus. His army is now supposed to have swelled to 20,000 strong, and two satrapies nearby are now headless. Evagoras is dead, and Nicanor is fleeing with a few stragglers, and probably not in a position to answer major administrative questions. Added to this, these soldiers are supposed to have contained some of Eumenes' old forces, who were, as you can guess, not the biggest fans of Antigonus given the history of these two men. In addition, much of his new army was native to the two provinces to his east. Like any red-blooded general would in his situation, Seleucus decided to capitalise. He began spreading the tale that Alexander the Great himself had appeared to him in a dream. I'm sure that Eumenes would have looked on with pride, given that he'd once claimed that Alexander's ghost presided over his war council. Now, whether or not you believe this apparition to be true, it was a political masterstroke. After all, as I believe I mentioned a few episodes back, Antigonus had been a member of the Old Guard along with Antipater, who had not travelled east with Alexander during his conquests. This means that Antigonus was not able to harness and employ Alexander's reputation, or sway over the common Macedonian soldier, in the same way that Seleucus was. Either way, it seems to have been effective. What we're going to call Seleucus's foreign policy, which it basically is by this stage given the weakness of imperial government, became more hostile in its outlook than it had been the first time around. Seleucus swept through Media and Susiana to the east, adding them to his territories. One advantage he had was that Polyperchon, remember him? He's the regent, by the way, was allied with Antigonus, as I touched on in episode 5. This means that, although in theory Polyperchon was the only one with the authority to appoint satraps, his partiality allowed Seleucus to basically ignore him and do what he liked, going on a rampage through the east. I'm going to digress a bit at this point, and ask you to notice how insignificant even the regent has become. The emperor is the figurehead for the regent, and the regent has now himself become a figurehead. 
with real power having devolved to local squabbles. This double set of figurehead rulers kind of reminds me of the Warring States period in Japan almost 2000 years from now, where the Emperor was a figurehead, and then the Shogun under him gradually became a figurehead, with individual clans and daimyo warring for control. In our case, even if the trappings of empire are still in place, it's essentially ignored by everyone with real power. But back to Seleucus. In approximately six months, he managed to capture Media, Susa and Elam, which are all regions in what is now eastern Iran, as far as I'm aware. It's at this point that someone offers him the title of Nikator, which he accepts. I've variously seen Nikator translated as Victor or Conqueror, but the former is more common, so that's the one I'm going to be using, Seleucus the Victor. He may even have gone further east than this, but what we do know is that his campaigns of conquest never reached as far as Bactria or Sogdiana at the eastern edge of Alexander's domains. Or at least not at this stage, foreshadowing. The governor of Bactria, Stasenor, had remained neutral in the fighting, which didn't really give Seleucus the Cassus belly he would have needed to invade. However, Seleucus was still the most powerful ruler in the region, meaning he would have had cause to feel pretty smug about the whole thing. And, of course, that's when Demetrius showed up, having been sent by his father Antigonus to deal with this pesky nuisance in Babylon. With the peace treaty concluded in 311, Antigonus now had the time to commit soldiers to fighting against Seleucus. Demetrius would duly arrive in the spring of 310 BCE, when Seleucus was actually still in Media. That's what we're going to discuss in part 3, after the interlude. See you then. As was perhaps to be expected, Demetrius eventually arrived at Babylon. The Wikipedia page for Seleucus mentions that Antigonus sent him on his way with 19,000 soldiers in total. However, as with the last set of numbers, I can't be entirely sure of this. The father-son duo were likely unaware of Seleucus' string of conquest in the East. In fact, they may even not have known, or been told, about the swelling of his ranks after the victory at the Tigris. As we mentioned, Antigonus doesn't seem to have been that interested in the fate of the eastern portions of Alexander's empire, so the fact that Seleucus had taken over the majority of these provinces may not have been realised or even cared about by Antigonus. Now, as I just said, Seleucus was still in Media, not in Babylon, where Demetrius was. Instead, he'd left a man called Patrocles in charge of the city. The garrisons defending the city were divided between two fortresses protecting Babylon itself, which was surrounded by easily defensible cities and natural obstacles. As part of the preparations for the attack, the civilians were removed from the city and divided among the neighbouring regions. Demetrius was eventually successful in capturing and sacking the first of the two fortresses, but the second one was a harder nut to crack. This posed a problem for Demetrius, as he'd been sent to Babylon on a time limit by his father, with orders that he returned to Syria after this time limit expired, so eventually he had to turn back. When he returned, he appointed his companion Archelaus as rival satrap of Babylon, 
with orders to take the second fortress. Seleucus initiated a guerrilla campaign against Archelaus, and the attempt seems to have fizzled out, as I don't really hear any other details about it. In the autumn of 310, Antigonus himself arrived in the east. This may have been off the policy of if you want something done, do it for yourself. I've seen differing accounts as to what happened next, so I'm mostly going to skip over the actual fighting. However, it's safe to say that by 309, Seleucus had defeated Antigonus. For the next few years, Antigonus will largely be occupied in the west again until 302. Accordingly, Seleucus will swivel his gaze eastwards again, towards the eastern satraps of Alexander's empire. This will include interference in India, which we touched upon in episode 4. So, next time, we'll head back over to the east. Provided I can find sufficient sources for this, next time we will discuss Seleucus' Indian campaign, the treaty with Chandragupta, and potentially how the Greeks viewed India itself. Depending on time, we might even be able to cover the event that will be a turning point for both the semblance of imperial unity and for Seleucus himself, the reception of the royal diadem and the crowning of the successors as kings. In the meantime, thank you for listening. For any comments or questions, feel free to get in touch at afteralexpod at gmail.com. That again, afteralexpod at gmail.com. Also, just a reminder to everyone that the Alexander the Great poll is still open for responses. Until next time, have a great week everyone.